Y'all, I just got home from seeing Black Klansmen, and it is necessary viewing. So good. It's set in the 1970s. This movie is not a period piece. It's not meant to depict a different time. It is clear that Spike Lee sees parallels between the Black experience in the past and our country today, and let me just say, he is not subtle about it. Don't worry, I'm not going to spoil the movie for you, because I want each of you to get the chance to go and see it for yourself. But it got me thinking that it's a testament to the power of movies to teach us about history. But what if you don't like reality? What if you want an escape from the intensity of the news? What if you don't want to spend your free time being forced to learn about things that happened in the past? Ugh. What if you'd rather watch fictional characters fly spaceships and parade in pageants to the deaf? Well then, today you've come to the right place. I'm tired. I'm stressed. I'm anxiously anticipating starting a new school year next week. Ugh. So I needed a break, an opportunity to think about the lighter side of history. So today, I'm doing what all history teachers do at some point. Ugh, I don't want to teach today. Let's just pop in a movie. So what are we talking about today? Entirely fictional movies that aren't actually entirely fictional. Movies that have a totally made-up plot and characters, but that draw inspiration from the past. These are my favorite type of movies, because it's like an inside joke for people who paid attention in high school. Everyone else is sitting in the theater thinking they're being transported far off into a fantasy world, but you and I know that we're actually learning something. Haha, <laughs> suckers, Marvel tricked you! Today, I want to highlight my two favorite fictional historical movies. One came out earlier this year and gave us a glimpse into an incredible alternate history of the world. The other is a series that I think doesn't always get the respect it deserves, but today, the odds will be in its favor. This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's get some historical context. Act 1. Black Panther. First, obvious spoiler alert. For Act 1, I'm going to be talking about Black Panther. So if you haven't seen it, if you don't yet know what a Wakanda is or how many war rhinos it takes to win a battle, you shouldn't listen to this section. Skip to minute 24 to hear me rave about the Hunger Games and then come back to this section once you've watched the movie. And please watch the movie. Okay, you have been warned. So I know that I'm not the first to point out that Black Panther is incredible. Oh my gosh, I loved every second of it. But as someone who seriously is not sure if she's ever seen another Marvel movie, like this isn't a joke, is Wonder Woman part of the Marvel universe? If so, I've seen that, but... I loved Black Panther because it was so steeped in history. First, quickly, in case you don't remember the movie very well, let's go through a brief rundown of what happens. Wakanda is a small country in East Africa that houses the world's only stores of vibranium, a highly valued substance in the Marvel Universe. In the 1940s, Howard Stark, a fictional inventor, businessman, and father to Robert Downey Jr., discovered a tiny bit of the substance and used all of it to forge a shield for Captain America. Maybe you've heard of him? He punched Hitler in the face in the first edition of his comic book? Yeah, that Captain America. Anyway, Wakanda has tons of vibranium, and they've used it to become the most technologically advanced country in the world. But in order to protect themselves, they've hidden away and presented themselves as a poor third world country. Let's stop for a second. 
When you think about it, isn't this a really sad indictment of our general apathy toward African nations? The Wakandans know that all they have to do is just pretend to be desperately impoverished and then no one will pay any attention to them. Ugh. The basic plot of the movie goes like this. T'Challa has become the new king after his father died. Meanwhile, an arms dealer and enemy of Wakanda named Ulysses Claw is working with a straight-up ripped Michael B. Jordan selling stolen vibranium on the black market. Ultimately, we find out that Michael B. Jordan doesn't care about the vibranium. He wants to use Claw to get to Wakanda. We don't know why yet. He kills Claw and takes his body to the Wakandans as an offering. When he gets a meeting with King T'Challa and his advisors, he tells them that he isn't Michael B. Jordan. He's actually T'Challa's cousin. What? Gasp. After years as a black ops soldier, killing enough people to cover his entire body in meticulously spaced scars and to earn the nickname Killmonger, he has made it to his ultimate goal. He wants to claim the throne for himself. He challenges T'Challa to the ritual combat. T'Challa agrees and gets pushed off a waterfall. Killmonger is the new king of Wakanda, and he says that they are drastically changing their foreign policy. Instead of hiding away, they're going to send out vibranium and weapons to black people all over the world to support them as they rise up and violently overthrow their oppressors. But wait, T'Challa is alive because the hard snow broke his fall. I don't know. I don't get that part. But a battle ensues between the different sides of Wakanda. Cue the war rhinos. So awesome. Ultimately, T'Challa wins and Killmonger dies. At the end of the movie, we discover that T'Challa has decided to open Wakanda up to the world, but not to spark a violent revolution. He sets up outreach centers around the world in predominantly black areas to help raise them up. In other words, he decides to teach them to fish instead of giving them vibranium fish. Right? Okay. Let's break down a few parts of this story as they relate to history, because there is really too much to cover. First, what's the historical basis for Wakanda? Yeah, it's a made-up place, but apparently after the movie came out, Google searches for flights to Wakanda spiked, so yeah. There are a few real places that have served as the inspiration for Wakanda, depending on who you ask. The comic book author, the movie writer, the movie director. Fictional Wakanda supposedly borders Ethiopia. And that is not a coincidence. If you remember from season one, Ethiopia was the only African country to resist colonization. Ever since they were the Christian kingdom of Aksum during the time of the Roman Empire, they resisted conquests from outside groups, first the Muslims and then the Europeans. And they actually defeated Italy in the Italo-Ethiopian Wars of the late 19th century, but we don't know if they used war rhinos to do that. Actually, we do, and they didn't, and that makes me sad. Another inspiration for Wakanda was the country of Lesotho. You know this one. It's the weird tiny circle in the middle of South Africa that you always thought was a lake that they forgot to color blue on the map. Was that just me? Movie director Ryan Coogler visited the country. Lesotho avoided the worst parts of colonialism and the apartheid segregation that surrounded them in South Africa. But the most interesting possible inspiration for Wakanda is the country of the Congo in Central Africa. The Black Panther first appeared in comic book form in 1966, the height of the Cold War. And at that time, the real world was watching another epic struggle between the U.S. and the Soviet Union for the most powerful substance on Earth to power their weapons, uranium. And where were the richest deposits of uranium? Well, just ask Albert Einstein, who wrote to FDR in 1939 about developing an atomic bomb. Quote, 
the most important source of uranium is in the Belgian Congo. Just six years after that letter was written, uranium from the Shinkalobwe mine in the Congo was used in the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. When the Congo became independent from Belgium, the U.S. and the Soviet Union both tried desperately to control the new government. One part of the country seceded and civil war ensued. After new president Patrice Lumumba asked for help from the U.N. and was ignored, he turned to the Soviet Union for help. Eventually, Lumumba was assassinated, and the U.S. supported his opponent, Joseph Mobutu Sese Seko. Remember him? He's one of the African dictators and all-around really bad dudes that I talked about last season. He's the guy that stole so much money from his own country that political scientists coined his government a kleptocracy. Anyway, the U.S. supported that guy in an effort to indirectly control the uranium-rich country. So, Wakanda's tactics make a lot of sense historically. If you are a country in the Southern Hemisphere, you do not want the West to find out that you have valuable natural resources. Just look at the silver mines of Potosi in Peru, the golden diamonds in Southern Africa, negative shout out to Cecil Rhodes, the spices of India, or the tea, silk, and everything else luxurious in China. All in all, it's a good call, Wakanda. But that's what makes Black Panther such an interesting premise. It gives us a look at what might have happened to Africa if they had avoided all of the history that I've been talking about. What if their men hadn't been enslaved and shipped across the ocean? What if they hadn't been colonized? What if their wealth hadn't been stripped away from them and sold to profit outsiders? What if they hadn't had to send soldiers to fight European wars? What if they hadn't been pitted against each other for hundreds of years, making it really difficult to establish a new independent country in peace? Wakanda answers that question. They would be badass. My favorite moments in the movie were all of the references to imperialism woven throughout the dialogue. You might not have caught them the first time you watched the movie, but I highly encourage you to rewatch it now that you're a history expert. Let me just quickly point out a few of my favorites. First, the scene in the London Museum is perfection. Michael B. Jordan stands looking at an exhibit on African art, and the irony of the white female expert on African art is not lost on Jordan, especially when she misidentifies an artifact that he knows is actually from Wakanda. Take your art history degree and shove it, lady. When he reveals to her that he plans on taking some of these artifacts off her hands and she accuses him of overstepping, he responds, quote, How do you think your ancestors got these? Do you think they paid a fair price or did they take it like they took everything else? Yes, Michael B. Jordan paid attention in history class. Later, after he becomes king, Jordan slash Killmonger flips the script, saying, quote, the world is going to start over, and this time we're on top. The sun will never set on the Wakandan Empire. Awesome callback to the British Empire, but also, does that make him just as bad as them? We'll get to that debate in a second. Claw, a white British arms dealer, and an also straight-up ripped Andy Circus. Like, I wish Gollum had gotten more screen time in Lord of the Rings now that I've seen his enormous biceps. My precious indeed. Anyway, focus, Emily. Claw repeatedly calls the Wakandan savages who don't deserve vibranium. This is exactly the justification that Europeans used to colonize Africa in the first place, and it's also the argument Americans used to take land from the Native Americans. They were uncivilized brutes, quote-unquote, who aren't utilizing the land and resources as fully as they should be. But the two best moments come from the ladies, obviously. Little sister and proof that girls like science, too. Shuri, jumps when Martin Freeman wakes up in her lab, saying, don't scare me like that colonizer. During a shootout and car chase in South Korea, Okoye scoffs at the white people's weapons. Quote, guns, so primitive. Think about this for a second. 
This is an amazing table-turning moment. When Europeans showed up in Africa, they were so technologically advanced. They had guns while the Africans were fighting with spears. But now, a fierce African warrior woman and wig-hating Okoye takes down multiple white men at a time with what? A spear. So good. Before we move on, a quick note about our two white guys, Andy Serkis and Martin Freeman. I love this. The film has completely subverted the typical Hollywood movie with a main cast of black actors and just two token white guys. And those two white guys get pigeonholed into one-note characters. They're either the thuggish dealer or the boring but affable guy who kind of just stands in the background to add a little diversity to the screen. Man, I love me some Martin Freeman. But this is what's been happening to black actors and really all actors of color throughout movie history, and it's so great to see them literally flip the script. All right, there's obviously a ton of references to other African culture that pops up throughout the movie. A big one is reverence toward their ancestors and the belief that the afterlife is an ancestral plane where you will be reunited with your loved ones. This was an important fact for slave traders who tried to prevent slave suicide by cutting up the bodies of those who died so that they couldn't travel to their homeland in the afterlife. Brutal. But I'm definitely not an expert in African culture, and there are a lot of people who've done a much better analysis of the art, fashion, and other cultural elements of the movie. So I'm going to leave that to them. The last thing I want to talk about is the central conflict of the movie. What should be Wakanda's relationship to the world, especially the black community? This conflict boils down to three opinions. Most conservatively, T'Challa wants to keep Wakanda completely closed off to protect his people from the outside world. To this, Killmonger has the wonderfully historical rebuttal. Quote, didn't life start right here on this continent? So aren't all people your people? Shout out to East Africa, cradle of humanity. In the middle of this debate, Nakia, beautiful, badass Nakia, wants to open up Wakanda because it's too hard to keep turning a blind eye to the suffering in the world when she knows that Wakanda could help. I mean, obviously the woman is ultimately right, and this is the path T'Challa chooses, although he'll present it like his own idea. Typical. The most radical perspective on the conflict comes from Killmonger and his father, R.I.P. Sterling K. Brown. They both have watched for too long as black people have continued to be oppressed. Remember, Killmonger grew up in Oakland. And in the late 80s, the crack epidemic caused Oakland to be one of the most crime-ridden cities in America. Oakland was also home to anti-establishment hip-hop and rap artists like Tupac Shakur. So Black Panther hits at a debate that's been ongoing throughout African-American history. How to best resist oppression. We've seen this in multiple forms, especially since emancipation, but I think the movie is best represented by a debate that was occurring at the turn of the 20th century in the United States. In the South, Jim Crow was firmly entrenched. Reconstruction had ended and white Southerners had taken back the reins of power, passing laws and supporting groups that disenfranchised, intimidated, and killed Black people. And Black leaders had different opinions about how to overcome these obstacles. First, there was Booker T. Washington. He's our T'Challa for the sake of this conversation. He was an African-American educator, author, and the most prominent black voice in the Jim Crow South. He gave a famous speech that was nicknamed the Atlanta Compromise that essentially proposed that black people should not directly challenge segregation and disenfranchisement right now. So it was a compromise made with white Southern leaders who said that they would allow blacks to gain a basic education and economic opportunity if they just stopped pushing for full political equality. So Washington, like T'Challa, argued a more conservative path. First, gain economic independence through education and entrepreneurship. 
It's similar to the compromise that T'Challa and the previous king sort of struck with the world. If you leave us in our vibranium alone, let us build up our economy and our technology, we won't get involved in the global political struggle. Booker T. Washington's compromise was popular with middle-class African-Americans and sympathetic whites who saw him as the least threatening of the black leaders of his time. But many people, especially poor blacks, saw Washington as a traitor for telling them not to fight for their political rights right now. They saw Washington as a coward, hiding way behind his books, choosing a path that was the safest and slowest route to equality. T'Challa at the beginning of the movie tried a similar tactic. He wanted to keep his people safe. Similar to Washington, who saw outspoken black activists being arrested or worse, lynched. And so he hid away in the utopia of Wakanda. W.E.B. Du Bois was the most outspoken critic of Washington. Side note, Du Bois gets an awesome shout out in Black Klansman. You should go see it. So the two of them were contemporaries, and Du Bois actually spent a large portion of his awesome book, The Souls of Black Folk, devoted to taking down Washington and his Atlanta Compromise. He was not happy about this. Du Bois believed that black people should settle for nothing less than complete equality. He was the first African-American to earn a PhD from Harvard, and he was one of the founders of the NAACP. Through this organization, he pushed for a sustained political resistance in the courts and on the streets to improve the lives of black Americans. Nakia is my Du Bois. She wants Wakanda to get out there and start really helping people. They both don't believe in outright violence or revolution, but they believe that they should be doing more to promote equality. Nakia could also be Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. if you wanted to shift this debate ahead about 50 years, but I'm going to talk about him and his ideas a lot in actually the next episode, so for now, we're going to stick with the early 1900s. Finally, we have Killmonger. As his nickname suggests, he is not opposed to violence as a form of resistance, and for this, probably his best historical counterpart would be Malcolm X, the philosophical opponent of Dr. King. Malcolm X argued that violence could be an appropriate tool, especially when you're fighting against a violent regime. But again, I'm going to talk about him next week. A quick aside on the Black Panther comic book hero versus the Black Panther's political organization. They actually both were coincidentally formed in the same year, 1966. I tried to find a connection, like if one was named after the other, and I couldn't. The Black Panther's party was founded at first as an armed citizen patrol to act as a check on the Oakland Police Department. Basically, the police were brutalizing black people, and so the Black Panthers decided, well, we're going to get guns and walk around and protect black people from the police. Again, it's very intentional that Killmonger was raised in Oakland, the home of the Black Panther Party. Images of young black people in berets carrying guns terrified many, and fun fact, well, not so fun fact, prompted the NRA to support a ban on open carry weapons in California just one year after the Black Panther Party was founded. Coincidence? That's weird. Anyway. Marvel actually tried to rename their character Black Leopard to distance themselves from the political affiliation, but it didn't stick. And the Black Panthers were painted as a totally violent organization, which wasn't untrue, but they also created community centers and provided social services to the Black community that had been largely ignored by the government. Okay, so besides the obvious links between Michael B. Jordan's character and Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party, I think Killmonger is also really similar philosophically to a Jamaican activist and predecessor to Malcolm X named Marcus Garvey. He was also a contemporary, although he was slightly younger, of Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, and Garvey's big idea was Black nationalism. Garvey believed that the only way Black people would gain power was if they ruled their own country, separate from white people. 
He believed that blacks and whites would never be able to live in the same country peacefully. Du Bois, for his part, called him, quote, the most dangerous enemy of the Negro race in America. So obviously he wasn't popular with all African-Americans. Garvey established the Black Star Line, a shipping company that would establish trade between Africans around the Atlantic Ocean, and it could send African-Americans back to Africa to reconnect with their historical roots. Kind of like Killmonger in the movie, who travels from Oakland back to Africa to explore his historical roots in Wakanda. We see this idea of Black nationalism throughout Killmonger's story arc. He sees himself as part of a global community of Black people. And he laments that as a U.S. soldier, he, quote, took life from my own brothers and sisters on this continent, just so that he could eventually defeat T'Challa. He's furious, especially being raised in Oakland, that Wakanda has hidden itself away. Quote, where I come from, when Black people started revolutions, they didn't have the firepower. Where was Wakanda? And, quote, two billion people around the world who look like us. Their lives are a lot harder, but Wakanda could liberate them all. T'Challa responds to this argument by pointing out that if Killmonger goes through with his plan to arm black people and help them overthrow governments, then isn't he no better than the colonizers? But Killmonger, like many black people throughout the post-emancipation era, who suffered so much at the hands of an often violent white regime, doesn't see it this way. Ultimately, Killmonger, like Marcus Garvey, sees black-white compromise and coexistence as impossible. And he would rather die with his people as a proud black man than live in a world of compromise. And Killmonger wins the award for best last words. Quote, Just bury me in the ocean with my ancestors who jumped from the ships because they knew that death was better than bondage. R.I.P. Michael B. Jordan. In the end, T'Challa chooses the middle path. Obviously, it's the one his lady friend has been telling him to choose the whole time. Just listen to Nakia. The last scene shows T'Challa and Shuri in Oakland, where he's going to establish the first Wakanda International Outreach Center. Like his counterpart, Booker T. Washington, T'Challa emphasizes the importance of education. But like Nakia's W.E.B. Du Bois, he chooses to take a more active role in uniting Black people around the world and creating pride in their African heritage. It doesn't hurt that he lands his Bugatti spaceship in the middle of a basketball court. <laughs> That's a good start. The ending of Black Panther is really beautiful. An unknown young Black boy playing on the same basketball court where Killmonger was playing when his dad was killed, gazes up at T'Challa in amazement. Talking about the spaceship, is that yours? Who are you? You can see in his eyes how important that moment is. And allow me to get preachy for a minute. This scene is getting at something that people have been talking about a lot in the last few years. Representation. Seeing someone who looks like you in a position of power, like the boy sees in T'Challa, or on a movie screen, like so many Black people saw in the movie Black Panther, Representation is so important. So in the story, by opening themselves up to the world and showcasing the strength and talent of Wakanda, they're showing Black people the possibilities and the promise that exists for people who look like them. And, I mean, I've been preaching, much less successfully, something similar across season one. Representation in history matters too. Understanding the rich past of Africa makes a difference in how we view the continent today. It's the reason why I love this movie so much. As a historian, it's a fascinating alternate history and thought experiment. What if imperialism had never happened? But it also sends an insanely critical message about the importance of telling everyone's story, not just the traditional narrative that says that Africa is a poverty-stricken continent that needs our help and is probably going to be ignored. There's always another side, an alternate history that exists alongside the textbook version. So go on, Google flights to Wakanda. 
it doesn't hurt to keep looking for that alternate reality. Act 2, The Hunger Games. If you listen to season one, or you are a former student of mine, then you had to know we were going to talk about the Hunger Games at some point. I mean, that's basically why I started this podcast. It's just an excuse to, at some point, talk about how much I love these books and movies. I use this movie throughout the school year to explain topics across world history. I love it. Let's go. So setting the scene. For those of you who haven't read the books or watched the movies, what have you been doing with your life? Listening to podcasts? Turn this off and go educate yourself. But obviously another spoiler alert. I'm going to talk about all of the books and movies, although I'm mostly going to focus on the first one. But you've been warned. War. Terrible war. The Hunger Games is set in a dystopian civilization in North America called Panem. Decades ago, there was a rebellion by the districts against the capital. The rebels lost, and the capital responded with the Hunger Games. Every year, each district sends two children to fight to the death on live TV. You know, typical stuff. The winner gets, well, to live, and wealth and a life of comfort. Until book two... Really? Just like, let him live, Snow. What's wrong with you? Okay, even just with this basic premise, there is so much from history. For one, in the Hunger Games, social hierarchy and division is extremely important. The districts are all separate and can't communicate with each other. They're made to compete against each other to take attention away from corruption in the capital. And it's also to prevent them from ever joining together to rebel against the capital again. Good luck with that. We've seen this throughout history. Leaders have tried to divide civilizations to keep them from uniting against them. In the post-classical era, the early Islamic caliphate led by the Umayyads declared Islam an ethnic religion, and so they split their empire between Arabs who were allowed to join the faith and non-Arabs who were not. They were overthrown because of this, by the way. President Snow should have learned a little bit about the Umayyads. We've seen this type of thing in so many other times in history, too. The Chinese Confucian system and the five basic relationships that strictly regulated everyone's place in society. Shocker, women are at the bottom. The Indian caste system that was introduced by the Aryan invasion. And the castas in colonial Latin America, who were divided up between mestizos, mulatos, peninsulares, and creoles, all with different rights and responsibilities. The higher-ups in the higher castas in Latin America were allowed to wear certain types of more ornate clothing, just like we saw in the capital in Penem. Beyond social division, the economic system in the Hunger Games is similar to mercantilism during the age of imperialism. All products are produced by the outlying districts, but they go through the capital, which retains most of the wealth. Also, each district aligns its entire economy around the production of one cash crop or industry, which means that on their own, they wouldn't have a fully functioning economy. So they need the capital. This is imperialism. District 12 can't eat coal, just like American colonies couldn't survive on sugar and tobacco alone. Although, between junk food and vaping, teenagers are trying their best. Moving away from the basic premise to the names. Y'all, almost every name in The Hunger Games is historically significant. Pan Am... The name of the country in the Hunger Games is bread in Latin. And Latin students, I'm sorry in advance, I'm about to really poorly pronounce something, but in the Roman Empire, the government instituted a policy that they nicknamed panem et circenses. I don't know. It means bread and circuses. 
Basically, the idea was that if the emperors kept the people fed and entertained, they would not pay attention to the corruption and power plays amongst the political leadership. Sound familiar? The leader of Panem is President Coriolanus Snow. He's named after Gaius Martius Coriolanus, a brutal Roman general who got into politics, but he was so unpopular that he was eventually deposed. Uh, spoiler alert. Coriolanus was exiled, and he led enemy troops to besiege the city of Rome. He's later depicted by Shakespeare as siding with the wealthy aristocrats against the common people. Damn Donald Sutherland. Then there's Cinna, sweet Lenny Kravitz with your golden eyeliner. Cinna was a character in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, who was an artist that was mistaken for another very real Cinna, the politician believed to be involved in the assassination of Julius Caesar. In the play, poet Cinna is killed by a mob because he's seen as a traitor to the Roman Empire. In the Hunger Games, Cinna is also an artist who eventually is murdered because of his fashion statements against the capital. Cato was a Roman senator known for his conservatism and military service, just like Cato the career from District 2, who trained and supported the whole idea of the games until the very end. Notice in general that the Roman names are found in the capital, the wealthy part, but the poorer districts have more unique nature-based names. Rue, oh, too soon. Rue is a medicinal herb, for example. It's kind of like the leaves that she puts on Katniss after she gets stung by all the tracker jackers. And Katniss is an edible plant, and we know that from the books, but that plant is part of the genus Sagittaria, named after Sagittarius, the constellation also called the Archer. Whoa, double name meaning, I love it. I volunteer! I volunteer as tribute! This statement, and the fact that the contestants in the games are all called tributes, has a lot of connections to historical empires. Many different civilizations set up tribute systems, which means that lesser states had to pay tribute or give gifts of wealth, crops, or sometimes people as a sign of their subservience. The Tang Dynasty that ruled China from 600 to 900 established a powerful tribute system. The ruling classes in nearby Korea and Vietnam both paid tribute to the Tang Emperor. Vietnam, for example, gave them strains of fast-growing champa rice that were partly responsible for China's massive population growth. But no one took this idea of tribute as far as my guys, the Aztecs. The tribes of central Mexico all had to pay tribute directly to the Aztecs, mostly crops to feed their soldiers, but the Aztecs also had an incredibly high demand for sacrificial victims. In many of their rituals, it was necessary to sacrifice a soldier captured in battle, so perpetual war was a key component of the Aztec worldview. War. Terrible war. In times of peace, this is insane, the Aztec ruler would meet up with some of his allies, nearby powerful tribes, and they would all sit down and arrange a predetermined war for no reason except for the sole purpose of gaining people to sacrifice. These so-called flower wars were scheduled by the various leaders because they all needed men caught in combat to give to their gods. Perpetual war is also a great way to keep your people united and focused on a single cause or enemy. President Snow knows this. He realizes the double importance of the games. It entertains the masses and prevents them from spending too much time dwelling on the fact that most of their lives are miserable. But it also provides a small ray of hope. Maybe they could be the one who could make it and live a life of fame and riches until book two. 
And President Snow knows that. Quote, a little hope is effective. A spark is fine as long as it's contained. I love that moment when Seneca's sitting there like, okay, what do you want me to do? Contain it. Ugh. The Aztec flower wars are in some ways really similar to the actual Hunger Games. It was a scheduled conflict that served a specific political and for the Aztecs also a religious purpose. But the Hunger Games are also, again, very similar to the Roman Empire and the gladiator fights. Emperors like Nero are famous for using the Colosseum to eliminate enemies to the empire, especially Christians. And that's exactly what Snow will do in Catching Fire, when he puts all of the surviving victors back in the games. He saw them as a threat to his power. Roman emperors would also add extra elements to heighten the suspense and entertainment value, like animals, like the creepy dogs with human eyes at the end of book one. One emperor filled the Colosseum with water to simulate a naval battle. The arena in the quarter quell, anyone? Did anyone else think that that was like a super unfair advantage for Finnick O'Dare? Like he lived around the water and then the whole arena was centered around water? Like, what? The pageantry of the Hunger Games was also very similar to that in the Roman Colosseum. Some gladiators became celebrities. We found ancient graffiti on the walls of Rome praising a certain gladiator or talking smack about another. Some fought so well that they won their freedom, although this was rare. And some gladiators weren't slaves at all. They were free men seeking glory and fame, kind of like the careers from Districts 1 and 2. And I mean, some gladiators were just straight up Russell Crowe. In the aftermath of the games, after Katniss and Peeta call the game maker's bluff and attempt suicide, head game maker Seneca Crane is forced to kill himself by eating the poison berries from the arena. That's Nightlock, Peeta! You'd be dead in a minute! Meanwhile, in ancient Rome, Seneca was a Roman statesman who was a favorite of Emperor Nero. Remember the one who used the gladiator fights to consolidate political power? And after Seneca was linked, unfairly, to a plot to assassinate the emperor, he was ordered to commit suicide by poisoning. Now, I mean, I love Suzanne Collins, but that's just straight-up historical plagiarism, right? Change the name, at least. So, the final reason why I love The Hunger Games is the way that it flips traditional gender roles. Going all the way back to prehistory, men have hunted and women have gathered. Women needed to stay closer to the home to care for young children. I mean, biologically, the only thing men can't do is breastfeed, but somehow that means that they're unable to change a diaper? I don't know. I don't get it. But in the Hunger Games, everything is flipped. Katniss has the masculine traits. She is the breadwinner of her family. She doesn't show emotion easily. She doesn't think about relationships. I don't have time to think like that. Even Gale, who is for the most part a pretty typical male archetype. I mean, he's a Hemsworth. He has to be. He mentions that he might want to get married someday. Hint, hint, catnip. You gotta lock that down. Katniss, though, is the traditional male hero. And in walks Pita. Sweet, sweet Pita bread. Pita takes on the traditionally feminine role. He is the quintessential damsel in distress throughout all of the movies. It's infuriating and adorable. Like the amount of times he yells, Katniss, help, is awesome. All the other victors have these like incredibly impressive traits. And what can Pita do? Like paint himself to look like a tree? He's our own little dystopian Bob Ross. Pita freely shares his emotions. He's artistic and sensitive. He's constantly in mortal peril, and he needs to be saved by Katniss. He's the traditional feminine role. But the perfect moment that encapsulates this point is the scene right after Katniss and Peeta are reunited in the arena. 
They go in search of food and Peta says, I'll take the bow. I'm just kidding. I'll go pick some stuff. Y'all, Peta is the gatherer and Katniss is the hunter. I see you, Suzanne Collins, flipping those paleolithic gender roles. <sighs> While I wanted to mostly focus on the first movie and book, there are great allusions to history in the others as well. The creeping fog that stings Katniss in the rainforest arena during Catching Fire is incredibly similar to soldiers' descriptions of poison gas attacks in the trenches during World War I. And the third book in the last two movies, Mockingjay, is really a great depiction of the whole anatomy of a revolution that we talked about last season. Think about it. The people are unhappy with the current regime, so a lot of different groups join together to overthrow the unpopular leader, President Snow. But the new people in power, like Alma Coyne and the former game makers, are not much better and they don't institute a lot of change. So a more radical revolution takes place, spoiler, when Katniss assassinates President Coyne. In the end, the survivors have to determine what to do with the perpetrators of the oppressive regime, the citizens of the capital. Again, war and revolution are way easier than peace. There's a roundtable debate amongst the leadership and the surviving victors about what to do. Do we forgive them or do we punish them? Katniss votes for a Treaty Versailles-style punishment, and this makes sense. She's never been a very empathetic leader anyway, and now she's hardened by her experiences. She wants to make Germany, I mean, President Snow, pay. But others, like Sweet Sweet Peta, sees that this will only perpetuate the divisions in their society. He votes for a more moderate, forgiving response that focuses on moving past the violence. Similar to President Wilson's 14 points, or even the treatment of Nazi Germany after World War II. PETA, like Michael B. Jordan, paid attention in history class. The epilogue of the book, not the terrible version of the epilogue in the last movie. Ugh. It lets us know that Katniss ends up choosing PETA because, of course she does, thank God, PETA's the best. But she also has an interesting inner dialogue in the book as she holds one of her children, thinking about how will she tell this story one day. I love this. The end of the Hunger Games series is contemplating history and how it is created. Which makes sense, considering history is written by the victor. There are obviously so many other movies that I could talk about in this episode. Wonder Woman made me cry, and has also provided the perfect clip to show my students when I teach about trench warfare. Gal Gadot strutting across no man's land deflecting German artillery is everything. I mean, Star Wars might be the original fictional history movie. Darth Vader's soldiers are called stormtroopers. It's literally the name of Hitler's personal army. But interestingly, Vader is not Hitler. Emperor Palpatine's rise from the chancellor to dictator does mirror the Nazi leader's slow climb in the 1930s, but George Lucas himself has said that his main inspiration for the film was Richard Milhouse Nixon. Quote, It was really about the Vietnam War, and that was the period where Nixon was trying to run for a second term, which got me to thinking historically about how do democracies get turned into dictatorships, because the democracies aren't overthrown, they're given away. End quote. Which makes you think, so if it's about the Vietnam War, which one's the United States? I mean, we're the empire, right? And the Vietnamese are the rebels and the Jedi? I mean, he said that the adorable Ewoks were inspired by the guerrilla fighters, the Viet Cong. Makes you wonder. 
There are also tons of allusions throughout Star Wars to the Roman Empire and the Jedi or like the medieval monastic soldiers of the Knights Templar. I mean, Reagan's whole plan to shoot Soviet missiles out of the sky was nicknamed Star Wars. There's so much in those movies that someone could write a whole book about it. In fact, someone did. You should read it. In 2012, it was a book called Star Wars and History by Janice Liedel and Nancy R. Reagan. Not that Nancy Reagan, although that would be incredible, right? The other example of a work of fiction that draws heavily on history is my first and truest love. Sorry, Zach. It's Harry Potter. I can't even get into this series right now or else we would all be here for the next seven hours. And I'm not joking. Ask my husband, who has to pull me out of my one-year-old's bedroom every night as I try to keep him awake so that I can read him more of the Goblet of Fire. Like, we gotta get going, Leon. We gotta get through these books. (sighs) I will have to do an entire episode on J.K. Rowling's masterpiece as soon as I've gotten over my grief about the series ending. (laughs) For now, enjoy movies. Go back and watch Black Panther, watch The Hunger Games, find movies that claim to be fiction, and see how much they all lovingly plagiarize from history. And then, smugly tell all of your friends about it so that they know how smart you are. People love that. Thanks for listening to Antisocial Studies. And don't forget that if you like what I'm doing, then go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give me a review. Thanks. Thanks.